This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I'm still not quite comfortable in the chair in front of the mic. I feel like I haven't quite gotten my sea legs back. But I'm going to give it another go this week. Before I get going, I want to respond to one of the comments that I received this past week in response to last week's episode. If you recall, I told a story about a guy named Mark in my town. Mark had lived a double life for more than a decade. He had fathered a child with, with his mistress. And then after living this double life for about 10 years, he went to his wife and said, you know, I love my mistress more than you. I'm leaving. Went to go live with his mistress. But then his, but then his mistress got sick. And died. So then he took his child from that relationship, went back to his wife, and said, On second thought, you know, my mistress died, and gosh, is there any chance that we can get back together and raise his child? And I told that story not to rip on Mark, but to illustrate the deleterious effects of unchecked, unbridled ego. I was trying to convey how all of our egos are a little insane at times. And then if you're not aware of your ego, if you don't bridle your ego, if you don't check your ego, it can lead you down the strangest of paths. Now, this is the comment that I got. Jack, just heard your ego podcast. I liked it. Well done. So that was nice. Thanks for that. But then the comment continues. I do think you may have been a little hard on Mark. It is unknown if he has now recognized his ego and is learning to be a better man. Triple question mark. Maybe give him the benefit of the doubt, question mark. So I want to be clear. I don't think Mark is his ego. I don't think Mark is the product of his ego. The point that I was trying to make is that I do think that during that period of his life, Mark had been totally hijacked by his ego. And in that hijacked state had created a lot of misery for himself and others. And my point was that unchecked ego, because all of our egos are a little insane, can produce pretty terrible, even odious results. And I found that string of events, the decade of living a double life, fathering a child out of wedlock, leaving his wife, divorcing her, and then going back to her later before the divorce was final with his child from this extramarital affair he was having. I think all of those actions created a lot of misery. And I, I think stating that is not being hard on Mark. I think it's just being objective doesn't mean Mark's condemned forever, nor does it mean that Mark is not deep down a spirit of being in light like the rest of us. But the fact of the matter is, I think that Mark hadn't, at least during that period of his life, been aware of what was happening. He had been hijacked. Part of life, I think, is that we learn to recognize this strange ego that has grown or will grow inside all of us and to recognize it for what it is and all of its insanity, and that we as the pure beings of light are not our egos. We're not the little voice in our head. That's a separate thing. There's something else about the comment, too, that I want to address. It seems to imply that it's bad form or might hurt the feelings of another person to talk candidly about actions and conduct, and that we really ought not do that. We ought not say that a certain conduct or certain behavior is bad when it clearly is, or hurtful when it clearly is, or odious when it clearly is. We ought not do that because the person who did that thing, their feelings might be hurt, or we might make them feel like they're a bad person. That we ought to just give people a break 
it's more important that we not judge people so that they don't ever feel badly. I know the comment doesn't say that explicitly, but there is this sort of implied vibe about the comment that says, well, you're, you're being a little harsh on him talking about his conduct that way. That might hurt his feelings. And again, I want to back up here. If someone is totally hijacked by their ego, has not learned to identify it, notice it, be mindful of it, is operating like a zombie in its control, I think that's right. If you discuss the conduct of that hijacked zombie in, in a very frank way, in an objective way where you call it what it is, and in the case of Mark, it's, it was quite hurtful and destructive, the things that he, he did. So to Mark's ego, which is hijacked Mark, if you, if you say those sort of things, that ego is going to be damaged and get its feelings hurt and jump up and down and scream and defend itself and, because that's what egos do. But I don't think we just kind of give in to that and just not say things or not call things what they really are because we're worried about hurting someone's ego. And again, I want to distinguish between the ego of Mark and his deeper being, which is full of light and pure. But I think the facts are, at least during that period of his life, he was not operating under the dictates of his deeper being. Now, I have no idea what sort of state Mark is in now. I have no idea if he's grown or noticed this thing or about himself. I have no idea. I hope he has. If he has, I don't think his feelings would be hurt discussing it because he would know he would be so enlightened. He would realize that it was the workings of his ego and that he is a sovereign individual. It needs to be mindful of his ego always. So I guess my response to this commenter is, no, I don't think I was too hard on Mark because I really wasn't trying to criticize Mark. I was trying to illustrate a point. Also, I thought I was pretty nice because Mark's not the guy's real name. I protected Mark's identity, I think. It's the final point I want to make, which is growth and progress requires a certain amount of candor and a certain amount of accuracy when one thinks about or discusses one's behavior, one's performance. And this is why learning to identify one's ego and being mindful of it and not reacting to everything it reacts to is so important. Because ego is always trying to shut off this sort of progress and learning and does so by griping and complaining and having feelings hurt and playing the victim and all sorts of things so that ultimately it can stay in charge and not lose control of the being. Well, that's kind of weird. But you can really tell the difference between someone dominated by their ego and someone who isn't dominated by their ego, particularly when you're giving them feedback. People who are mindful and are in control of their egos and have not been hijacked by their ego will listen and assess feedback. And if it's relevant, they'll absorb it eagerly. Whereas people hijacked by their ego will come up with excuses, try to turn the tables. We've all seen that. Now, the tricky part, I think, is that as Christians, as members of our church, we're taught to avoid contention, to not be judgmental. Judge not, lest ye be judge, and contention is of the devil. And of course, you can take these things too far, because judge not cannot mean you never exercise judgment. That can't be what it means. And not all discussions or disagreements can be considered satanic contention. That also can't be what it means. And so we need a little wisdom and also just some basic common sense in applying these broader Christian values 
Otherwise, it's too easy to get lost in our own delusions about what is what, to get lost in our own fantasies about what's good and what's not good and what's okay and what hurts other people and what actually constitutes progress. You know, if, if a man does all the things that Mark did, or if a woman does all the things that Mark did, lead a double life, have a child out of wedlock, leave your spouse, leave your family for this extracurricular affair, come back after your mistress or your manstress, what's the equivalent of a mistress? I don't know. After your mistress or your manstress has died and go back to your spouse, I think the most charitable thing any of us can do for that person at that juncture, at that point in their lives, is to say in no uncertain terms, unequivocally, these things that you have done have been selfish, not thoughtful, abusive, unkind, hurtful, immoral, and you're most likely an egomaniac, a narcissist. And if his response was at that juncture is, I know, I realize that, it was horrible, I was psychotic, my ego had completely hijacked me, I don't know what happened to me, but I've, I've woken up, I've gone through the pain that has made me aware of how terrible my ego is, how out of control it was, and I'm learning. Well, at that juncture, Mark doesn't need my forgiveness or, or anyone's for that matter. He's progressed, but tiptoeing around his feelings, and we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. If, if you do that at, at, at a point when what he really needs is the truth, like you're not helping Mark. And I think also as individuals, if we do that, we drive ourselves insane because then we might think the same sort of logic applies to us as individuals, or, or we'll feel like we're somehow just being politically correct instead of actually experiencing life. Well, to the commenter who sent me those comments, this is why I couldn't really respond in a text or in a quick email. Though I do want to thank you for your comment. I don't mean to pick on you or point out things that you may or may not have meant even, but we're living in a world with a declining amount of objectivity, I think. And I don't think that's a healthy environment over the long term. In fact, I think when life is really doing its job is when it's teaching us over time what is really what, how things really are, how everything really works. And if we're deluded with fanciful notions of our own goodness or we're deluded that our actions that are very hurtful are not hurtful, or if we're deluded about our particular skills when we're really not that skillful, we're deluded about our self-worth self in some way, we're, we're crippled in a sense. We're stuck, we're stopped, we're limited. But life has a way of teaching us over time how things really work. And sometimes as life teaches us about our delusions, it makes us feel bad about the things that we've done. Or it makes us feel bad when we realize we've been hijacked by our ego, we've been selfish. Sometimes when life teaches us about our delusions, disabuses us of our own delusions, it makes us feel way better because we were limiting ourselves by believing something about ourselves or about life or about God that was limiting, not accurate, that was cutting off blessings and opportunities and joy and miracles. So when life disabuses us of those delusions, it's really wonderful and it causes us to relax more. But even those delusions, when they're ripped from us, even when that's painful, ultimately that, that gives us joy and happiness and more peace and more ease and a greater sense of love. But sometimes, you know, you got to say what is what. And sometimes the ego reacts badly. And one final thought about this, 
is lost in this discussion about Mark and whether or not we ought to be candid about his actions and whether or not Mark has overcome his ego. And if he has, how should we treat him? And if he hasn't, how should we treat him? Lost in all of this back and forth, in my own mind, is Mary, his long-suffering wife, who he betrayed for a long, long time, had a child with, who he said he was leaving, was preparing to divorce, and then came back to her with the child he had out of wedlock and asked her to raise it. Lost in all these concerns about Mark's feelings, at least in my own mind, and I think in the mind of the person who made the comment. Again, I don't mean to be picking on this person, but I think lost in this whole conversation is Mary. And I don't raise Mary in the sense that, oh, Mark needs to pay and we need to bring the hammer down on Mark because of what he did to poor Mary. I'm not raising her in, in that sense. But Mary's actions during this entire saga were quite different than his. And I think her spiritual and mental maturity and her capacity to recognize and bridle her own ego was far, obviously it was far, far more developed than it was for Mark, at least during this period. And I raise that because if you can set aside your ego, you'll be shocked at the tremendous ease at which you're able to be compassionate and charitable and non-judgmental, which I think she must have been to welcome this child into her life after all the terrible things that Mark had done. When you set aside ego, that flows, that being this compassion and this charity and this ease to just do what is right, it flows much more easily I speculate here, but I think it is not coincidental that Mary departed this earth much sooner than Mark did. Mark hasn't yet, so obviously she's departed sooner than he has. Mary, as you recall, she also got sick, and then she passed away a little while after Mark came back. I'm speculating here. I'm going to wade into sort of territory that some people might not want to think about and draw some conclusions that some people are going to think are unreasonable, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the people like Mary, the Marys of this world, sometimes they just sort of don't stay here as long. And the Marks of this world seem to have more time to work out their deals. I have an older sister who came down with early onset Alzheimer's and died at a very young age, far too early. I mean, and this sister was, I don't think I'd be offending my other siblings. She was, she was pretty nice. I think she was nicer than the rest of us. I, I don't think that offends, I don't think that will offend any of my siblings. They, it may offend them. But she was, she was a darn good person is what I'm saying. Not a lot of ego, down-to-earth, kind, grounded. I think she had learned what she had to learn. I think Mary learned what she had to learn. And I think for all of us, a primary lesson that we all have to learn is to first and foremost recognize and learn to bridle our ego and all of the crazy thoughts and impulses that it sends our way. There are a lot of other specific things that we may have to learn. A lot of other delusions we may be carrying around that are hampering our ability to give and feel love. There might be fantasies that we indulge in that life needs to disabuse us of. But this first step of dealing with ego, I think, is a universal step that we all have to come to terms with. Of course, everything I've discussed so far presumes a few things about life. And one is that we continue beyond this realm. And secondly, what happens in this realm is primarily instructive. And therefore, the events of this life really aren't that important in and of themselves, but are only important in so much as they instruct us in some way, teach us, change us, improve us, enlighten us. Those are some premises that people sometimes don't want to accept. But I think that's the case. I think that's the case not only because of what I've been taught inside of our community, 
because of all the research and the experiences of those outside of our community. We are not the only people, after all, who believe in life continuing after this earth, after our bodies, which we're living in while here, die. We are not the only people who believe that, think that. There are a lot of people, in fact, who study this quite rigorously. There are people who have dedicated their lives to documenting things like near-death experiences, intuition, spiritual guidance. So not only does the thought of life continuing on beyond this realm appeal to me emotionally and mentally, and not only have I been taught that by the people in my community that raised me and taught me the fundamentals about life, but it seems to be based on the data and objective fact. The reason I raised this logical premise upon which all of this conversation thus far has been based is because when you accept that premise, it makes things a lot easier. The weight and the severity of any particular thing happening or not happening is lightened and replaced by inquiry into the instructional purpose of any particular experience. I think that's a question that we need to constantly be asking ourselves, and I think that's a question that we need to, in response to our insane ego, ask ourselves. There's an additional premise with that, which is something I've talked about before, which is that all experience is ultimately good. And you'll find if you think that every time your ego fires, if you use your ego's insanity and its incessant impulsive firing as sort of an incessant reminder to you to think this isn't that important, except in one way, it's supposed to be instructional. And so what am I to learn from this experience, this relationship, this failure, this success? If you do that in response to your ego's incessant firing, you'll find your entire experience on this planet improved, better, more enjoyable. You'll start noticing all the synchronicities, all the coincidences which are not coincidences. You'll start noticing how orchestrated it is. You'll start noticing a guiding hand in your life guiding you to learn those things you need to learn to grow in ways you're supposed to grow. And sometimes that growth and that learning may be painful as you come face to face with bad things, bad assumptions, bad habits that you've been engaged in because you've been hijacked by your ego. But sometimes this is the real beauty. I think more than sometimes, I think most of the time, I'd say nine times out of 10, the learning and the growth is intended to free you, make you more capable, fill you with more joy, fill you with more love, make you better able to recognize beauty and to recognize joy, give you more of a sense of self-worth. Sometimes you got to go through what I think Mark's got to go through. You know, we need to have those experiences in life that show us the ravages and the destruction of unchecked ego. Those can be painful. Sometimes we're bystanders or even victims of unchecked egos of others, that can be instructive, that can be painful, or nothing at all, depending on the state of your own spiritual maturity. But I think nine times out of 10, God, the universe, the Holy Ghost, your spiritual guide, however you want to think about it, is trying to show you and me how valuable we are, how capable and good we are. It's a great scene in the New Testament of the woman at the well. This woman was a Samaritan. The Samaritans, you may remember, were sort of the mixed breeds of ancient Israel. They were the descendants of the Jews who were living on the fringes, who intermarried with the people of Samaria. And so over the generations, they had developed kind of this hybrid-y, sort of Jewish-y, like Judaic religion kind of thing. 
but they were not considered a clean people, and the Jews in Israel found them repulsive. Well, one day Jesus and his band of disciples are traveling to some destination, and they're cutting through the corner of Samaria. It's a more direct route, and it's a hot day. They encounter this well and this Samaritan woman at the well. So Jesus leaves his band of disciples and heads over to the well to get a drink. And the disciples are sort of shocked by this because, you know, it's Samaria. It's a Samaritan well. And at the well is this Samaritan woman. And well, everyone knows what Samaritan and their women are like. That's kind of the dynamic that existed between these two peoples. Nonetheless, Jesus heads over to the Samaritan well where the Samaritan woman is. And he says to her, hey, will you get me a drink? Which kind of surprises this woman because she's well aware of the dynamic between the two peoples. But here's this guy treating her like an equal. Not only that, he shows her respect. He's solicitous. He says, will you pour me some water? And this confuses this woman, presumably because she thinks of herself as inferior to them. She's used to getting looked down upon and feeling scorn. And I mean, the, the Jews had a, a rule that said anything the Samaritans touched became unclean per se. So this had to have affected her deep foundation, some of the presumptions she had about her own self-worth her own value as a Samaritan. Those cultural dynamics had to have created a delusion in her of inferiority. Yet here was this guy, a Jew, who by simply asking her to draw him a drink of water seems to be ignoring all these subconscious presumptions she had that both of them should have had about each other. It's one of the reasons this is such a great story. Such a mundane thing on one level, just asking for a drink of water. Yet such a simple act conveys so much from Jesus to this woman. So the woman does that. She goes over and she draws up some water from the well and she hands it to Jesus. And as he's drinking, she asks, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for water? And Jesus' response is a little cryptic. And he sort of says, yeah, this is pretty good water you gave me. He doesn't really answer directly her question, which was, why are you being so nice to me? Instead, he gives her this kind of oblique answer. He says, yeah, this water's pretty good, but You know, if you knew who I really were, it would be you coming to me for living waters. The living waters, so great, of a metaphor, of a symbol. And this comment about the living waters gets this woman thinking a little bit. She's grown up, after all, in a place where the religion and the language is similar to that of the Jews. The religious symbols and imagery is probably pretty similar. So this idea of living waters gets her thinking about other religious principles she's been taught, namely the Messiah. So she responds to Jesus by saying, well, I'm not quite sure what this living waters stuff means, but I do remember being taught about the Messiah, and then a Messiah should come. This is what Jesus wants. He wants her to start thinking about living waters and the Messiah and being saved from herself and her own delusions, her own bad presuppositions about her worth, which are limiting her. He wants her to get past this feeling of inferiority that she has, maybe because of place she grew up, maybe because of the way the Jews treated the Samaritans. He was trying to free her the way our experiences in this life are trying to free us. While she's thinking about these things, the living waters, the Messiah, Jesus jumps into her thoughts with another revelation. And he says, oh yeah, and by the way, I'm the Messiah and I'm the source of these living waters. Now for most of us, at least I think this has been the case throughout most of history, at least through most of modern history, When someone comes up and says, hey, guess what? Uh, I'm the Messiah here with living waters for you. For most people, I think, throughout most of history, the reaction to someone like that is, "Uh uh-oh, you know, crackpot alert. 
I'm going to start walking backwards very slowly. You can drink all the water you'd like, but just stay there. I mean, that, that's a reaction we have if we're on the city street or, frankly, even if we're in church. I mean, if some guy got up in fast and testimony meeting and strode up to the pulpit and said, I'm here with living waters, and just so you know, oh, ward members, I am the Messiah. I mean, you'd probably lean over to your children and say, oh, no, he's not. Don't listen to that guy. That guy's a nut. I mean, that's the way most people throughout most of history have reacted to the guy claiming to be the Messiah, right? And I suspect that was the reaction of the Samaritan woman. She probably said, oh, you know, things were going so well. We were having a nice conversation. You were treating me like a person instead of some dirty, gross, love, Moses-y, unclean, you know, gross blob. I was thinking there for just a moment that you might be different from the rest of those Jews, but then you had to drop the I'm the Messiah bomb. I suspect Jesus was aware of this. So he did what I think often happens when we're getting guidance from beyond, when we're having something miraculous happen to us. Even if it's happening in what on the surface appears to be a very mundane circumstance. He gave her a little proof. And he said, hey, are you, are you married? She says, no, I'm, I'm not married. He says, ah, that's right. You're currently not married. You've been married five times before. But the person you're currently living with is not your husband. And I suspect he said this in a very non-judgmental Matter of fact, way, he said it in a way, I suspect, much like he asked for the water, in a way that conveyed to her that this is not as big of a deal as you think. I'm not looking down on you or judging you. I just just need to give you a little piece of information so that you would not think that I'm a crackpot and not think that you yourself are a crackpot. Because I think that's the first thing our egos tell us when something unusual happens that challenges the restrictive premises of our lives that are delusions that limit us. The first thing our mind or our egos or our habits tell us in response to unusual things like this is, that's a coincidence, that's a fluke, that doesn't change the fact that you're a dirty Samaritan, an adulteress, cheater, a terrible person, dumb, not worthy, not of worth. And the ego is so fast that this is just, this feeling just rifles through us. It's not even audible or with words. You just somehow know. So sometimes we need a little push to let go of our delusions. And so that's what I think Jesus did for this woman at the well. He gave her a little push, told her some stuff that there's no way he could have known. Why did he do that? So that she would partake of the living waters. And clearly the waters kept flowing long after he left. She must have felt really good and things were going to work out and all experience was good and everything that was happening on this earth was instructive. I'm sure she didn't think that all at once. But that's the path I think he was pushing her down. You don't need to be handcuffed forever to your experiences, to, your, to, to the actions of your bad ego, whatever else you feel bad about, however else you're limiting yourself. You only need to learn from it, transform and grow, which in my mind only makes sense if life continues on past this world. This is the hard message I think that people just don't want to accept. And I think people do. I think we do deep down. But when we're driven by the fear or worry or rationality or habit or all the structures of our mind and ego, when our attention is centered on those things, then we can only do what our mind and ego tell us. Well, this woman ran back to her people, the Samaritans, and told them what had happened to her, that there was a prophet in Israel. We don't know how they reacted, but I suspect the process for them was the same as it was for her as it is for all of us the beginnings of awakening to who and what we really are, beings of light, having an instructional experience here, beings that will continue, beings worthy of love, 
and abundance. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.